Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center and your host for this episode. The digital environment in which we live allows individuals to greatly amplify their voices, connecting them with like-minded individuals across the world through elaborate social networks where ideas and images are rapidly transmitted, reverberating and evolving as they are shared. But these expanding digital frontiers have created numerous challenges for legal systems that were devised to address a far more limited and controlled media landscape with clearer delineations between media creators and consumers, as well as between public utterances and private thoughts. Our guest today is Jenny Lung, Professor of Linguistics in the School of English at the University of Hong Kong. As a fellow this year, Jani has been working on a new book tentatively titled Language Crimes in the Digital Age that considers the evolution of law in the modern communications environment. So welcome, Jani. Hi, Robert. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. So this is just a, a wonderful and a fascinating topic. But let's begin, perhaps, if you can talk to our audience a little bit about how the boundaries between public and private speech have been blurred uh, with the advent of social media? Um, so a lot of the existing what I call language crimes that we are familiar with, um, these belong to the domain of public regulation of speech. So I'll give you some examples of that. Um, language crimes include things like threats, incitements, or even bribery. A lot of crimes can be committed through language. Now, there comes private regulation of speech uh, in more recent years. We have content that people produce on a day-to-day -day basis that have been censored by private companies, even though they may not be technically illegal in their own countries. So companies set up their own rules and standards that regulate what speech is allowed on their platform. And what's even more interesting is that this private and public governance of speech, they actually interact because companies also work with governments in terms of censoring dissident speech, in terms of regulating, passing on information about individuals. So there's kind of complexities between this public and private governance. So, for example, let's take Facebook as an example. How, how is content moderation being done at Facebook? So Facebook currently has around 15,000 human content moderators, a lot of whom are contractors, um, contract workers around the world. They have on average less than 150 seconds to make each moderation decision. Content moderation can happen before publication or after publication. So as you upload content onto their platform, they have this artificial intelligence system that already screens your content uh, to see whether there is any matching for violation. And then after you publish your content, you have these human moderators or artificial intelligence kind of filters that continuously screen through to see whether there is any violating content. So other than human beings who are content moderators and artificial intelligence, Facebook also relies a lot on users actually flagging content for their review. So kind of basically are three, kind of three pillars to this moderation process. And more recently, an interesting development is that Facebook has set up what they call the oversight board 
which is like a Supreme Court that uh, selectively reviews some of his content moderation decisions. So that's an interesting development that kind of prompted me to look more into um, decision-making in the company. Yeah, with the, with the intervention of artificial intelligence and, and the algorithms from artificial intelligence, are, one would assume that there are also certain biases that are introduced that are, that are part of the code and that are perpetuated. Uh, could you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, actually, a lot of existing scholarship already has tackled questions of, for example, racial bias and, and other kinds of inequalities in this kind of machine gatekeeping of public speech. But what I kind of investigated further on is actually, even if the rules are supposed to work 100% like they should, there is still a question of unfairness to decision-making because these rules themselves are not well-constructed. Because these rules, when they are constructed, they are AI-centered. They are constructed to work with the limitations of AI. So I think there are kind of two separate questions here. There is the question of you have this set of rules, you kind of feed in biased input, and therefore there is biased output. So that's the kind of inequalities a lot of other people have talked about. And then there is a further question of the rules themselves, what kind of built-in problems there are, even if they were supposed to work 100%. What are the implications for free speech? So firstly, I think we need to be aware of how powerful private companies have become in, in their decision-making power. One law professor in the U.S., um, Jeffrey Rosten, in an interview, he said, Facebook has more power in determining who can speak and who can be heard around the globe than any Supreme Court justice, any king or any president. And I think he's absolutely right. So there is that level of um, decision-making power. Combine that with how hidden this kind of decision-making process has been from public eye. So what's fascinating for me about the recent publications of these um, oversight board decisions is that until these decisions have been published, I actually have no way of getting even examples, a glimpse of how these content moderation decisions are made. So this provided me with an opportunity to actually examine you know, how, how decisions are made. And this is partly because Facebook publishes what it calls community standards. This is kind of the outward facing uh, rules, general standards that they use, but then they keep a different set of internal rules, which are not publicized, so we actually don't know how the rules work until recently. We got a slightly better glimpse of some of these rules. So is there any legal recourse to address this discrepancy? This is an interesting question. So if you look at the way the Oversight Board makes its decisions, it's based on two kinds of rules. The first kinds of rules are rules that Facebook comes up with for the company. So these include the community standards that are outward facing, and their internal rules that they come up with for content moderation. The second set of rules that uh, the Oversight Board pays attention to is international human rights laws, which are generally quite broadly framed. So for example, it requires that any rules that are adopted to be really necessary and the remedies are proportionate. So things like that kind of general principles. Um, so these are the kinds of rules that uh, Facebook have been paying attention to. But when it comes to whether 
Facebook as a company need to um, bear any liability legally in individual jurisdictions. That really depends on um, the national jurisdiction. So in the U.S., there's very strong protection for these companies, um, Section 230, which is like a, quite notorious in the U.S., basically provides immunity to social media companies from liability based on user-generated content. I think in Europe, they have more laws that force companies to be more proactive in content moderation. Let's kind of pivot a little bit to the specifics of your project. Talk to us about the specific issue or issues that you're you're addressing, particularly in relationship to what you're calling speech crimes. Uh, so actually, you know, from Facebook's perspective, these are not speech crimes per se, but these are um, examples of uh, content that violate their internal rules. So the way I approach the topic um, in this particular paper that I've just finished writing basically focused on recent decisions that the Oversight Board has made. So let me give you an example of these cases, um, which has to do with um, a user sharing, actually he was misattributing a quote to Joseph Goebbels, who was the Minister of Propaganda during Nazi Germany period. So this user inappropriately attributed to Joseph Goebbels the following kind of claim. Arguments should appeal to emotions and instincts rather than to intellectuals. The truth does not matter, and it's subordinate to tactics and psychology. Now, Facebook flagged this and called this, you know, violating content. The reason being that actually the name Joseph Goebbels triggers. It is part of an internal list that the company keeps, which Facebook considers dangerous. If any post on Facebook mentions a dangerous individual or organization on Facebook's list, the default assumption is that you are promoting the ideas by this individual organization. So unless the user provides additional context that makes their intent explicit. I was fascinated by this because even though if you look at the content of the quote itself and its context, such as audience reaction, so all his friends, uh, all the friends of this user actually understood this user to be sarcastic. He understood this user to be actually referring to um, Donald Trump, the former president of the US, when he was making this comment because it was during the election last year. So actually people, his friends, have no difficulty interpreting what he was trying to achieve in this quote. But Facebook, because uh, this user hasn't made his intent explicit, he didn't say, oh, I am just being sarcastic here. Then the content became flagged. One kind of immediate reaction I have is that this kind of rule is really AI-centric because it is built to be acontextual. It is not capable of reading between the lines, so the users have to actually be explicit in stating his intention in order to not be censored by Facebook. And as I go through other cases by the oversight board, I see a similar pattern that most of these cases arise because Facebook's rules are AI-centered. So how do you address this? <laughs> so I think firstly, we need to acknowledge this pragmatic, what I call pragmatic deficiency. I think acknowledging it is a good start because even though the office support has overturned Facebook's decisions, most of the decisions, it has not pushed Facebook to actually change its rules. So the Facebook 
oversight board serves some purpose in pointing out some of the issues, but it doesn't actually have the power to push Facebook to change the way it, it does things. So that's the one thing. Another kind of thought I have is that kind of this issue that we're facing here with uh, social media content moderation is kind of like climate change in that we are in it before we know how we got here. And in terms of solution, there's also a similar kind of parallel in that we can't depend on future technology in order to tackle an everyday problem that we're facing today. And dependence on future technology is exactly the kind of rhetoric you're going to get from these companies. So if you look at the kind of materials, um, if you look at the Facebook AI engineering, their blogs and everything, it tells you there's a constant rhetoric of improvement. Oh, here's version 5.6 of this uh, AI technology we have. I think it's really important to point out that this rhetoric of improvement is not catching up with the speed of harm. And a more immediate solution would have to do with resource distribution or redistribution rather than waiting for the next kind of AI um, revolution. Facebook is a company that's very profitable and is content moderation force is currently big, but definitely far smaller than what is needed to handle the current situation. So I think an immediate solution would require pressure on these companies to allocate more resources to its content moderation force. So who appoints the oversight board? This is an interesting question. So actually, Facebook takes a lot of steps, and I, I kind of I give them credit for that in trying to assure that these appointees, the oversight board, they are kind of fair and well-qualified individuals. There's a very good article by Kate Klonick, who actually reviewed the whole process of appointment, which the audience can refer to if they're interested in kind of like details of the process, but broadly, Facebook basically gives money to set up this trust, and this trust then goes on to appoint and look for at least the first batch of appointees. And then these individuals then will be involved in further selecting um, new appointees to the board. So there is quite a lot of um, steps that have been taken to ensure that these individuals have some distance from the company. Though I think some of the challenges that I am pointing out has less to do with who these individuals are, whether they're personally biased, but more to do with structural deficiencies in the content moderation process. So we've also seen with the advent of, um, of online material, uh, speech being weaponized to actually suppress speech, ironically, you know, what sometimes we refer to as cancel culture. And indeed, we have a lot of distinctions between that have emerged between what, what we might term online versus offline language crimes. And there's a, there's a kind of interesting dynamic uh, in terms of trying to find a balance between preserving free speech and also preserving safe speech. Can you talk about that a little bit? This is a really tricky question that there isn't like a, a clear agreement like in the legal community about kind of which way to go. So you know, some famous jurors have mentioned that, um, uh, have proposed that the best way to counter hateful or abusive speech is more speech, which is, I think, largely true. I think in a democratic society, we need that kind of conversation. We need to be able to propose ideas that are controversial 
that not every idea should be you know seen as an incitement. On the other hand, online speech has produced huge offline impact in societies in disproportionately to politically vulnerable societies. This partly has to do with, I think, inadequacies in the content moderation process. So one kind of observation I have is because the internal rules that Facebook use is a kind of limited set of objective rules. There is still a lot of room for discretion for their content moderation individuals. And this discretionary power is very dangerous in that people with less power, users with less power are disproportionately impacted by this censorship. And these these are not just individuals, but communities. So there's a lot of examples of the same piece of content that's censored by Facebook if I'm like an average user, I might not even have room to appeal to Facebook about the decision. But when someone famous, like an editor of a newspaper or a president of a country, complains that he has been censored, Facebook is very prompt in responding. So there's a huge difference in response time, depending on your power. And then there is the same dynamic being applied to communities and even country level. A famous example is um, uh, the Rohingya uh, massacre um, in Myanmar, where Facebook can be very slow in responding to online speech that's causing offline harm in certain political geographical locations than in others, depending on how they perceive these locations to be important to them, to what extent it was likely to cause a PR disaster or not. So I think for me, the focus should be on this kind of inequalities and injustices that this set of rules is producing and what we should be doing to make sure that this doesn't continue. So you are a humanist who is working on legal issues. Talk to us a bit about how we can get humanists and lawyers and technologists all working together in concert to ensure this balance uh, of free speech and safe speech? Yeah, thanks for this really kind of fascinating question. Um, one interesting stereotype that people have about lawyers is that they care about rules instead of people, that they kind of skip the social context and focus on you know, what the law says. And there's a kind of similar stereotype with technologists. They focus on the technology the algorithms, the math, instead of the people who are behind it. So I think kind of that's where humanists come in. I think humanists' job partly is to put the context back in the equation, to put the social environment and social impact back into the picture, using our skills, whatever that is, it could be like in storytelling, it could be in kind of cross-cultural uh, analysis. For me, it has, it has been kind of you know, related to my own training in linguistics. But I think that what we are trying to do is to put these human elements back into the picture and also focusing and pointing out the equity problems that these people are facing, these imbalances in power relationships, these assumptions that we should be questioning and seeing through the rhetoric of what these companies are telling us. 
So you're obviously very passionate and well-informed about this topic and are, are bringing great insights to it. So I wanted to ask you a more personal question to conclude, and that is, what brought you to this topic? Why are you so fascinated by these issues? Ah, thanks for that question. So I'm an interdisciplinary scholar. My training is in language and in law. So kind of I've come to this kind of naturally because there's an interesting intersection between the two disciplines. But on a more personal level, I came into this topic of free speech, actually originally more from the perspective of government regulation of speech, because I was seeing government prosecutions of individuals for online speech that they make, and sometimes rather a contextually. So based on, you know, a simple thing that they say online, they are charged with incitement and other kinds of crimes. So I, that was how I started. I started by looking at really language crimes. So kind of in, in public regulation of speech, is there a role for a more nuanced analysis of context that's more aligned with the digital culture in public regulation of speech. So that's how I came into the topic. And that's what I was working on until end of last year. And then January this year, the Capitol Hill riot happened and then the oversight board decisions were issued. And I kind of um, shifted gear a little bit to, to look at also private regulation of speech. And now that I'm kind of five months into this part of the project, I'm now really seeing how the two parts can come together in the bigger book project. Well, thank you, Jenny Long, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. I'm Robert Newman. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center. <laughs>